Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. Go ahead and take your seats. And let me invite you to get your Bibles out and you can start making your way to the book of Genesis. Because uh, we are back uh, into uh, the book of Genesis. We're returning to uh, the book of Genesis. If you remember at the beginning of last year, uh, the beginning of 2022, we did the first 11 chapters uh, of Genesis. And now, uh, at the beginning of this year, we're going to do this next section, uh, chapters 12 through 25. And as we return to Genesis, I just want to remind us of some of the major uh, themes and, and, and aspects that we discovered uh, in chapters 1 through 11, really by way of summary and kind of getting our minds back into this mode uh, as we get back into uh, the book of Genesis. And if you think about the first 11 chapters uh, in summary, there's, there's really a few uh, kind of pivotal moments or scenes uh, that unfold in that part of the text. First of all, obviously creation, right? God creates the world, He creates humanity, He creates all things. Uh, and then Adam and Eve sin. There's the fall, uh, which then leads to God's judgment, both of Adam and Eve, as well as the entirety of the world, and the flood uh, that comes upon humanity, which really in a lot of ways functions as a decreation of God's creation. Uh, and then you have almost this recreation or second creation with Noah, except the problem is sin is pervasive, and so people continue to sin, and instead of going out into all the world, uh, they're all concentrated, uh, and they want to build a tower uh, to show how great they are at Babel, and so God comes down and reminds them that He alone is great, changes all their languages, and scatters them. So as you think about that, right, that's, that's the thread of the story where we're going to pick it up. Really, we're reminded of a couple of things, a couple of major things that we want to keep in mind. Uh, first of all, that from the very moment that sin entered into the world, the very moment that Adam and Eve defied God, and God began to pronounce a judgment upon them, it, it launched us into this, all of humanity, right, where we are searching for that promised offspring who is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. All the way back in Genesis 3, when God says, hey, from, from you, right, the offspring, uh, there's going to come one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And then related to that, you have this ongoing theme of God's preservation uh, and God's blessing, how God is preserving and sustaining uh, His people. And, and the genealogies that we find uh, in Genesis in chapter 5 and chapter 10, we're actually going to look at the one in 11 here in just a moment, for a moment, right? They all speak to, to God's promised offspring, but also speak to God's preservation and how God is sustaining His people. And so with that in mind, as we approach this next major section in the book of Genesis, and more specifically as we come to chapter 12, uh, what we're going to see this morning is God's call to Abram, who will eventually be called Abraham, but that's not till chapter 17. So we're going to call him Abram until we get to chapter uh, 17, but that, that's his name. Uh, and we're going to see this call and these subsequent providences that God supplies to his people. In fact, here's where God's Word is going to lead us this morning, this idea right here, that God's call to go will be met with His promises of His providences. Let me say that again. God's call to go is going to be met with His promises of His providence. And so we have a whopping three verses uh, that we're going to move through this morning, which on the heels of doing Jeremiah, where we would do four, five, six chapters, uh, that you're like, man, this is going to be a walk in the park. No, it's not. Because there's all kinds of things uh, that are going on uh, in these three verses. 
Uh, so we're going to get to drill down deeply, uh, but we're going to need to drill down deeply because of all that's going on with this. So I'm going to read the passage. I uh, would encourage you to follow along. In fact, I'm going to ask you to stand uh, as we honor the reading of God's Word. And loved ones, this is the Word of the Lord. Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Loved ones, this is the word of the Lord, and it will stand for all of time. Amen? Amen. Why don't you take your seat, and we're going to pray. Oh, gracious and good Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. God, we're thankful that the word of God will do the work of God, and God, we're trusting you're going to do exactly that here today. And so, Father, we pray that as we get back into the book of Genesis 1, that you'd be reminding us of, of, of what you taught us last year in chapters 1 and 11, uh, and, and that we would continue to help us see uh, the thread and the flow uh, of what's going on. But not only that, but God, specifically in these three pivotal verses in Genesis 12, God, that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to know and understand all that you have for us. God, that by the power of your Spirit, that you would come and minister and encourage and challenge and exhort your people here today. And God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. God, this morning, praying for Mosaic Church and for Adam Viramontes. God, we're praying for that body of believers, that you'd be moving and working in them in the same way that we desire, that you'd be moving and working within us. And so, God, would you have your way now? We pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. All right, title of the message this morning is God's Call and Providence. God's Call and Providence. And again, this idea that God's call to go is going to be met with His promises of His providence. Uh, and, and so as we come to this text, uh, it, it would be really easy to just jump right into chapter 12 uh, because there's so many rich things that are going on. But, but I, I think we would miss some things uh, and we would not be served well to not just stop for just a moment and let's just back up into chapter 11 and give ourselves a little bit of the setting and the context of what's going on because it's been eight months uh, since we've been in the book of Genesis. And so I want you to actually jump back, first of all, to chapter 11, verse 10. And starting in verse 10 of chapter 11, we see this line, these are the generations of Shem. And then for the, from all the way through verse 26, you just see a bunch of names that are all tied uh, to Shem. This is detailing the genealogy of Shem. And Shem was one of Noah's three sons, uh, but Shem was the son, if you look back in chapter 9, verse 26, that Noah blessed. Uh, he did not bless Ham and he did not bless Japheth, but he did bless Shem. And, and the significance of that is that the blessing that came to Shem in back, back in chapter 9, uh, now we see picked up again in chapter 12. And so the blessing of chapter 12 actually has roots back in chapter 9. And then all these names, and I'm not going to read them all, you can read them if you want to, but all these names in verses uh, 10 through 26, what, what they really serve to do, they serve as a bridge between Noah and really the entire pre-flood world and where we find ourselves specifically with Abram. There's this connection as well as this ongoing blessing uh, that, that God had pronounced long before Abram was even born. In fact, you could argue that the blessing of chapter 9 is finding its fulfillment here in chapter 12. And so we see this connection, right? The, 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 these are not independent or isolated from each other, but very much connected this story. And then let me have you jump down to verse 27 for just a moment. 
and point out a couple of things that will help frame out chapter 12. So notice in verse 27, uh, it says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Now we see this word generation, and if you remember, that's a key structural marker in the book of Genesis. We saw it back in verse 10 uh, with Shem. We see it again here now with Terah. You're not going to see that word again until we get to chapter 25, which is why we're doing 12 through 25. It's, it's the entire account of, of, of Abram who will become Abraham and this key uh, marker that clues us into this significant figure and the, and the next uh, season or account, if you will, uh, of, of this next generation and God's ongoing preservation. And then in verse 28, we're told that Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. And again, a couple of significant markers here. One, we're, we're connected back to, to Ur, the Chaldeans. That's ancient Babylon, even before Babylon was called Babylon. But that's where the Tower of Babel was, right? Another connection to 1 through 11. And then you have this note about Sarai that she's barren. That may or may not, but most definitely will be significant uh, as we move through these coming chapters. And then if you look at verse 30 and 31, it says this, Terah took Abram his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur, the Chaldeans, to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And so you have where they're, they're, they're going to leave Ur, and they're, they're, they're heading to Babylon. But on the way, they stop in Haran, and they're like, you know, we're, we're good to just settle down here. This works. And, and it, some believe that, that Abram's family actually had, that their lineage could be traced back to Haran, and so it might be a return to family. It might just be that they got comfortable, but make no mistake, they are settled, right? They're settled here. And all of this sets the stage for this very dramatic call that comes to Abram in chapter 12. But we have to see all this because here's what I want you to note. Abram's in a really good spot. Right at the end of chapter 11, he's in a really good spot. He, he's living in the ancient Middle East equivalent of a white picket fence and a cul-de-sac. And God is going to disrupt all of that uh, at the beginning of chapter 12. And that's why this call is massive not only for him, but it actually has massive implications for you and I as well. So with that, let's get into chapter 12. Just two points. Two points here uh, in these three verses this morning. Here's the first, and we see it in the first half of verse 1. It's God's call to go. God's call to go. Here's what your Bible says. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Now, we read that and we might be tempted to be like, okay, yeah, he's supposed to go. Let's get to all the good stuff, man. Let's get to the promises. Let's get to the providence. I'm excited about that. But I actually think we're served really well to linger in this for a few moments so that we can see with clarity the cost that comes with Abram's faith and obedience. Because the good that's going to come from Abram is going to come via a profound cost. Did you hear that? The good that is going to come is going to come via a profound cost. Which, by the way, loved ones, that's true with the gospel. right? The salvation of Jesus is free. 
But following Jesus is going to cost you everything. And that's exactly what we see unfolding here in chapter 12, verse 1. In fact, there's three distinct aspects of departure that God uh, will present to Abram. He's like, I want you to leave your place, I want you to leave your people, and I want you to leave your parents. And so with that, let, let me just give one caution before we dive into this, that this is not prescriptive. Right? When you're reading the Bible, sometimes the Bible will prescribe things. Do this. Don't do this. At other times, the Bible will describe things. This is what's happening. Now, this is descriptive of what's happening in Abram's life, right? But it's insightful for us as, the, as followers of Jesus because what you've got to understand is God has the prerogative to ask the exact same thing of you, right? So don't read this and be like, well, it's just descriptive and it has no bearing on me. No, no. Yes, it is descriptive, but God has the freedom to call you to this very same thing. God has a right to call you and I to go. And so notice, let's just look at each of these three elements here for a moment. First of all, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, or literally the word there is from your land. This is God's call to leave your place. He's like, hey man, I want you to leave your land. I want you to leave your place. And Abram, in leaving his place and leaving his land, would be leaving what is known and what is familiar. Right? When you live in a place, you know what that place is like. You know what's expected. You know how things work. You, you know how, how it operates. When you move to a new place, whether you physically relocate, whether you go to a new job, you go to a new school, whatever the case may be, there's this element of starting over. Right? You don't know the routines. You don't know the expectations. You don't know the flows. And so that known and familiar sense is forfeited and abandoned in departure. Now, I'm 41 years old. I've spent roughly 30 years of my life living in Flagstaff, Arizona. Right? That, that, that is, from a time standpoint, that is the most known and familiar place for me. When we moved here almost 10 years ago, all that was known and all that was familiar was utterly worthless. Didn't matter here, right? It's this new place. This is what God is calling him out of. And what you got to understand is part of leaving your place is going to foster a deepening dependency upon the Lord because you can't trust in what is known and familiar anymore. So you are required to trust in him. This is part of the cost of obedience. And so listen, listen, listen. Following the Lord may require may require you, loved one, to leave your place. And you're going to have to put your dependency and your trust in the Lord. But it's not just to leave your place. Notice what he says next, to go from your country and your kindred. This is God's call to leave your people. Now, now this word kindred, this is likely his tribe, not his immediate family, although that's coming next. But you see this intensifying level of cost that's associated with this departure. And to leave your kindred or to leave your people is to leave what's comfortable. And when I talk about comfortable, I'm not talking about that life is easy or that you're being pampered. We talk about comfortable, we're talking about the depth of relationship that you have with the people around you. We're talking about the trust that can only be built over years of living in a community where you are known and you know others. That's what it is to leave your people. And if you've ever moved, right, if you've ever relocated, you inevitably have that moment where you realize the people in your new place don't know you like the people that you came from, 
Right? You, you don't have the same level of trust. You don't, you don't get the same level of the benefit of the doubt. You, you, you're not as freely believed or, 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 or whatever the case may be. You're not known, and you don't know them like you did. And so in this, don't, don't miss, don't miss what God's communicating here, is that our comfort and our familiarity with our place and with our people has to give way to our allegiance to Jesus. That's part of what God's saying and calling us to here. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing. Jesus himself said, whoever loves their father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. But if if we're going to follow the Lord, it means that our allegiance is ultimately to God. And so it may mean, listen, it may mean you might have to walk away from some precious things and some precious people to be obedient to what God is calling you to. Right? God here is commanding Abram to leave his family. He's telling him to leave his land. And, and, and yet, what's really interesting is what we're going to see in a moment. I'm running ahead just a little bit, but I want you to see it now, is that when God calls us to leave something, God will also provide something in that place. In fact, the first two promises that God gives are going to revolve around land and family. See, when God calls us from something, He's going to provide what's left behind. Now, it may not be one-to-one correlation. Uh, sometimes it's going to be distinct, but God is going to make a provision in fact, here, let me, let me show you this in the New Testament. If you want to flip over to the Gospel of Mark for just a moment, uh, you can. Uh, but in Mark chapter 10, uh, at the end of the uh, account where Jesus is talking with the rich young ruler, and remember the issue for the rich young ruler, he wasn't willing to leave stuff behind. He wasn't willing to leave his riches behind. And so Jesus says some hard words at the end of that. I want to pick it up in verse 28 of Mark 10. Here's what Peter says to Jesus. Peter began to say to him, see, we've, we've left everything and followed you. Now listen to what Jesus says in response to Peter's statement. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Do you see what Jesus is saying in that moment? He's saying, there are things that you're going to get in this time. And there's also going to be things that you're going to get in eternity. It's both a present and a future reality. Right? That the brothers and sisters and the houses and the mothers and the fathers, he's saying, in this time, in this life. And maybe, maybe some of you understand that experientially. Right? You've moved and, and you've realized that. I know, I know Becky and I, and our family, we can speak to this experientially. Because when we moved from Flagstaff almost 10 years ago, man, that, that was our place. And, and those were our people. And, and a lot of our family lived there. A lot of our family still lives there. And so what did God do? What did God do in, in, in moving us? God has given us a land, and God has given us a family. In fact, God, God's given us family in multiple ways. In fact, one of the ways that God has given us family, he literally gave us a daughter in moving here. Right? Most of you know our, our story with, with our youngest, Eliana, adopted from a mom who was born here. But it wasn't just a daughter, but, but, but God gave us a family. And I'm talking about you, church, which frankly is better than the family that we left behind. And I'm sure I'll hear from my mother when she listens to this. Mom, I love you. Okay, but, but we, we've just upgraded because that's what God does, right? He, he, he gives us bigger and better things. 
In fact, man, every time, every time when I, when I will stop and I will think and I'll reflect back on what, what would life be like if we would have stayed? Here's the word that every single time comes to my mind. The word is impoverished. I just think of how poor we would be. I think of how poor we would be spiritually. I think of how poor we would be relationally. Of, of, of all the, the, the relationships and the partnerships in the gospel and the friendships that God gave us in coming, we wouldn't have any of that. We would have lost. It would have been a catastrophic loss for us to not come. And so I say that because, let me just say this. Listen carefully to me. Loved ones, hear this. Be very, very careful. Be very careful that your biological family does not become a barrier to the gospel, that it does not become a barrier to obedience, and it does not become a barrier to God's better purposes in your life. This is God's call to leave your people. And if he calls you to that, he's going to give you more people. But it doesn't stop there. Notice thirdly, he says this. You're going to leave your father's house. This is God's call to leave your parents. God's call to really your immediate family. Now, now parents, you think of parents in, the, in their proper setting, in the proper context. What, what is it that mom and dad provide? Parents provide security and stability for their children. Right? In a healthy context, that's what mom and dad provide. And so to leave your parents, right, even though Abram, we're going to find out in a few verses next week, he's 75 years old, to leave your parents is to forego that security and that stability. Now, now for you young people sitting in the room, I don't want you to hear that and be like, oh, here's an excuse for me to not leave mom and dad. No, grow up and get out. Right? That's what God calls you to. Like, it's time uh, to move on, please. All right? But in doing so, Part of what you have to understand is you are foregoing security and stability. But here's what's going to happen for Abram. As he steps out of the security of his parents, it's going to allow him to step into the security that he's going to find in the Lord, which is an infinitely better security, by the way. And so parents, parents, let me speak to you here for just a moment. You've got got a child living in your home. Train your kids for this. Train your kids to grow up and go out trusting in the Lord. Think of it like this. Parents, you are training wheels on a bike, and the bike is dependency upon the Lord. The job of a parent is simply to train your kids to be able to trust the Lord. Now, now when your child is five, it's reasonable that they would have training wheels on the bike. It'd be weird if your 25 or 35-year-old was riding a bike with training wheels. we chuckle and laugh at that because it's silly, and it's silly when we don't train our kids to go out and, and to, to trust the Lord. So that's what we want to do, right? We've got, God's call to leave your parents. God's call to leave your parents is a call to find security and stability in Him. Let me just make a couple other notes here before we get to the promise. Um, first of all, I want you to notice, before we get to the promise, that God never gives Abram the destination. Do you see that? that, that there's an uncertainty in the destination. God's like, I'm going to take you to land, I'm going to show you. But God never tells him what the land is that he's going to show him. And that forces him to trust the Lord and simply for Abram to believe God at his word. And I say that because let me just encourage each and every one of you that if the Lord is calling you to something and he doesn't give you all the details, he doesn't tell you how it's going to end, he doesn't finalize everything, that is not a reason to go, no, we can't go. No, that's an opportunity for you to trust the Lord. That's what that is. Further, let me just remind each and every one of us that God's not obligated to tell you and I where he's taking us. He didn't tell Abram. 
I'm not sure. If he's, if he's not going to tell Abram where he's going, I, I think we're, we're just a little bit crazy to think that he's obligated to tell us where he's taking us. And so as we think about that, let me just ask you and I a few questions to consider here. First of all, are you willing to believe and obey God? Just simply put, am I willing to believe what God says? Am I willing to obey what God says? Am I willing to trust God's leading in my life even if I don't know where it's taking me? Even if I don't know how it's going to turn out? Will you trust that God's word, will you trust that God's commands really are best? And here's how you know you're answering positively is you're going to respond in obedient faith. Right? That's when you know you're believing this. You're responding in obedient faith. And so inherent for any of us in embracing the promises of God requires that something gets left behind. Abram's been asked to leave his land, he's been asked to leave his people, and he's been asked to leave his family. And so the cost is real, but the providence of God is better. And so here we get to the, really the fun stuff in this passage. We see, at the end of, starting at the end of verse 1, we see God's promises of providence. God's promises of providence. And there's, there's three promises that emerge here uh, in verses 1, 2, and 3 that, that are core to understanding uh, the theological and conceptual themes of Genesis, but they're actually core to understanding really the entirety of the biblical story. Right? The rest of the Bible is going to flow out of what we're seeing and hearing uh, here in Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3. This is the foundation of the entire biblical story. And as we get into this, let me, let me just first have you look at your Bibles, and I want you to note there's a phrase that shows up five times in verses 1, 2, and 3, and the phrase is, I will. There's five I will statements that all come from God. I'm going to show, I'm going to make, I'm going to bless, I'm going to bless, I'm going to curse. In fact, you might want to circle them or highlight them even in your Bible. And, and I note that because what I want all of us to be able to understand is that God is the one who's doing this, right? God is the one who's initiating. God is the one who's acting. God is the one who is accomplishing. God's going to give the land. God's going to give the family. God's going to give the blessing. It's his idea. It's his initiative. It's his work that's bringing all of this about which in a number of ways really foreshadows the gospel, does it not? I mean, is, is this not exactly what happens in the gospel? Right? In God's redemptive work of his people, it's God's idea, not our idea. Right? It's God's initiative, not our initiative. It's God's work, not our work that saves us. We're simply responsible to believe and to trust what it is that God is saying and doing, and in that we reap the treasures of salvation. But God's doing all the work. Further, Abram is going to obey because he believes. Did you hear that? He's going to obey because he believes, not the other way around. The, the order is crucial. He's going to obey because he believes. Faith, genuine faith in the Lord, it's going to prompt, it's going to provoke, it's going to enable a response from us. Obedience is the evidence that we have faith. It is not the source of our faith. God's doing the work. We simply respond to it because we believe it. So with that, let's just look at the three promises of providence that come here to Abram and really by extension to you and I. First of all, at the end of verse 1, he says, uh, right, he's telling him, I'm going to take you from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Here's God's promise of land. He says, I'm going to take you to land that I'm going to show you. God's first promise centers around the place that he has for Abram, or really for around 
his people. Now, Abram doesn't know, right? He doesn't know the land that God is taking him to. We know that God is going to take his people to Canaan, which, ironically, Abram and his family began to set out to there, but then they stopped in Haran and settled in, and they were, they were good. Uh, but, but God is ultimately going to take uh, Abram to Canaan. Uh, and, and God is promising a place for his people. And what we know of that place is it's going to be a good place. In fact, it's going to be a great place, right? Because it's a place that's described as flowing with milk and honey. And you remember in Numbers 13, those huge clusters of grapes that they had to carry on, on, a, on a pole, right? Because they were so rich and abundant. The whole point being that the land, the place that God has for his people, it's rich, it's prosperous, it's, it's an abundant land. And as you think about that place, this is one of the places where it's important for us to not lose the flow of the Genesis narrative, because actually it helps to fill out the picture. Because the entire story started in another really good place, did it not? It started in the garden. That's where this entire thing started. That even in creation, God had created a place, He'd created a land for His people. And what you've got to understand is that God always has a place for His people. In fact, the entire biblical story is going to recount how the people of God are either moving toward the place that God has for them, or they are living in the place that God has for them. Right? It started in the garden, the place that God had for His people. But they sinned, so they were evicted. Right? And then you've got the flood and, 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 and some of the wandering and stuff that goes on, and then they end up back at Babel, but they're not scattering over the earth. And so then you get here to chapter 12, and God's like, I'm going to take you, I'm going to move you to this place. And of course, we're going to see some sojourning with, with uh, Abram, and, uh, and then eventually people are going to end up in Egypt, and then they're going to end up in the wilderness, and they're eventually going to make their way to Canaan, but they're not going to stay there because they're going to rebel against God. So they're going to be exiled, and then they're going to be brought back into the land. The entirety of the Old Testament is God moving his people toward a place or having them live in his place? And here's the problem for the people of God. The problem is, is every time God puts them in the place that he has for them, they are incapable of keeping the law that is required with living in God's place. So in the garden, God's like, here's this great place. Here's the deal. Just don't eat from that tree. And what do they do? They eat from that tree. Boom, evicted. Right? And then he takes them in, into Canaan, into the promised land. And at the end of Deuteronomy, he's like, hey, here's the stipulations. If you do these things, it's going to go well for you. You're going to live in the land. What do they do? They don't do those things. They defy those things. Boom, out of the land. So the people of God have this habit, they have this pattern of God putting them in a place, but they can't stay in a place. So what is God going to do? God is going to prepare a place for his people, but he's going to do so in a manner and a way where our sin is going to be addressed and dealt with so that you and I can never be evicted and you and I can never be exiled once again. Here's where it happens, John 14. Well, it's not the only place it happens, but one of the places it happens, John 14. Here's Jesus in the upper room. Listen to what he tells his disciples. He says, starting in verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus is like, I'm going to work on a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. See, Jesus is saying, I'm preparing a place for you. I've got a place for you. But it's not here. Guys, this isn't it. See, you, you and I today, very much like the nation of Israel when they were walking in the wilderness, are in a time where we are moving toward the place that God has for us. 
but we are not fully living in the place that God has for us. We get glimpses, we, 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 we get little moments, but it's not the fullness of the place that God has for His people. In fact, here, let me, let me try to illustrate this uh, from something even from my own life. So, so right after Becky and I got married, we moved overseas. We actually spent three years living in Austria. Um, and so, of course, if you've ever lived overseas, you understand what it is to live as a foreigner. Uh, and, and, and living as a foreigner has a number of implications. Now, now, in a lot of ways, living in Austria was great. There was a number of things that we enjoyed and we were happy to, to, to experience and be a part of. Uh, but, but there were also some limitations that came with being a foreigner. Uh, probably the, not, not the least of which was that the rights that are extended to us as American citizens were not extended to us in a foreign land. Right? The Bill of Rights doesn't travel. I don't know if you, don't know, if you know that or not. But it doesn't travel, right? It's limited uh, to the shores of our country. In fact, I could, there were multiple times where I'd be like on the U-Bahn or in the city or whatever, and I would think, you know, if I was in America, I could do or say this, but here I might end up in prison, right? Those rights are not extended to us. Further, because we weren't Austrian citizens, there were certain rights that were withheld from us. Right, so there were certain limitations, certain things that we were not allowed to do because we were not citizens of that land. Right Now, when we would come back to the United States, right, the moment that we landed, every right and every freedom and liberty was immediately ours. But that was not true when we were in Austria because we were foreigners. And in many ways, loved ones, that's an apt description of what our lives are like here today in this present moment. Right? We, we, we live as foreigners. We live as exiles. First Peter taught us that in spades. So we, we can be keenly aware of all that's afforded to us in Jesus, all that's coming to us. And we get glimpses, we get moments, we get pieces where, where, where it's like, oh, it's there. But we don't get full and total access to it. Not yet. And God's saying, I got a place for you. It's a good place. In fact, it's a great place. Jesus is saying to his disciples, and to, by extension to you and I, he's like, man, I'm, I'm preparing a place for you. It's not Canaan, and it's not the United States. It's this future place. It's coming, and it's coming in eternity. And we get glimpses, but we're not there yet. God's got a promise of a land, and it's a good promise. Loved ones, hold fast to that, but don't miss this. Don't miss this. Right, the land afforded, there is a land that's afforded to God's people, but that land is only accessible through faith in God's word. Abram would only receive the land if he would believe God's word. You and I will only enter into eternity if we will believe God's word. You and I don't get the land without faith. Abram doesn't get the land without faith. God's first promise is his promise of land. Here's his second promise. Look at verse 2. He says, and I will make of you a great nation. I will make of you a great nation. Now, this is God's promise of family. And you might be like, family? He's talking about nations. Why, why, why are you talking about family? Now, we, we don't tend to equate nation with family or family with nation. But that, that, that's actually what God is doing here. And, and God's giving us a glimpse into a few other elements in terms of what's going on. Uh, what God is saying, he's like, I'm going to give you an offspring. I'm going to give you progeny. I'm going to give you seed. I'm going to give you a child. But the excessive level of my generosity is going to result in a nation. That, that's what God's saying here. Now, again, you think of offspring and, and, and echoes back to 
uh, Genesis 3. It's like, wait, could, could, could this be the one? Well, eventually, yes. This will eventually produce the one who's going to crush the serpent. But again, here, here's the problem. See, we, we've already been tipped off that, that, that Abram and Sarai ha- have a little problem when it comes to children. Or she's barren. So nation, bro, we, we'd be good with a, with, with a baby, right? So this conflict that exists has to get resolved for this promise to come to fulfillment. And, and here's what's so fascinating about this. You have God making this promise to childless Abram. He said, he, Abram's like, I don't want a nation. I just want a, I just want a child. And so why, why would God not say, I'm going to give you a family? Why, why would God say, no, I'm going to make of you a nation? Why so much more? Because this right here, loved ones, this is a perfect example of the excessive, abundant, overwhelming providence of God. See, God, God is not miserly. God is not stingy. God is not calculated when it comes to goodness and kindness and favor and blessing with his kids. God gives generously. He gives abundantly. He gives excessively. So that's why God's not just saying, a family's like, man, let me just tell you, because I'm a good, generous God, this is going to result in a nation. And how do we see that today? It, It actually plays out in the fullness of the church. Right, this family that's going to become a nation is seen in the family of God. The church is the family of God. Right, that, that, that's what we're told in Galatians 3. What Steve read a little while ago from Galatians 3 is that the true sons of Abraham are those who have the same faith that he had. Right, that we, we find our place in that story. We're, we're connected to Abram because God justifies Gentiles. That's what he's talking about in Galatians 3, 7 and 8. You and I are brought into the family of God by believing God's word. That's what brought Abram into the family of God. That's what's going to bring you and I into the family of God. God makes us his offspring. God makes us his heirs so that we get to live in the fullness of God's providence. God's promise of family, even though this is uttered almost four millennia ago, has a massive bearing and application in our life today. God's promise of a family that we are all now a part of because of the atoning work of Jesus on our behalf. And then thirdly, this final promise, is, is, it gets expanded on, and it's a more generic promise, but it's God's promise of blessing. So he says in the middle of verse 2, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God's promise of blessing. He's like, I- I'm going to bless you. In fact, you see that word bless or blessing five times in verses two uh, and three. And the blessing has both a personal element that's directed uh, explicitly to Abraham uh, and then a more broader uh, sense that has a universal or corporate element to it. The first couple aspects are directed uh, specifically to Abram, right? I will bless you and make your name great. He says, I'm going to bless you. Now, the blessing that unfolds in the coming chapters of Genesis that comes to Abram is going to see, uh, be seen primarily through wealth and prosperity. This guy's going to be loaded. 
Man, flocks on flocks on flocks, herds on herds on herds. A lot of the conflict is because he's going to have so much wealth. And let's just be honest, we, we hear that, we're kind of like, ooh, that get a little skittish, right? We, 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 we don't want to get into that prosperity gospel stuff, we get a little uncomfortable with that, maybe we start to back, but wow, you know, I mean, it probably also has to, no, no, we, we don't have to be ashamed of that, we don't have to be embarrassed of that, that's what God's talking about here. He doesn't say, I'm going to help you, he says, I'm going to bless you. And the primary means that we see this play out is going to be in a physical, resourceful manner. Let's see it for what it is. God's a kind, generous, abundantly a providing, loving Father. We don't have to be ashamed of this. And we also don't have to try to explain it away because there's actually a New Testament version of this as well. Let me read to you here from Ephesians chapter 1 where you see really the New Testament version of what we see in uh, Genesis chapter 12. This is the beginning of Ephesians, this great opening from Paul to the church in Ephesus. Starts in verse 3, he says, blessed, see, same verbiage, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I don't know about you, but that sounds an awful lot like what you hear in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, right? He didn't say, I'm going to give you a few things. I'm going to be modestly helpful. No, I'm going to give you every blessing that exists. And then Paul has grammatically one of the most annoying places in all the Bible because he doesn't use a period throughout the entirety of this thing, right? So it's impossible to read the way it's supposed to be read because you just can't do it without needing to stop and breathe. Now, I'm not going to read all of it. Here's what I would commend to you today is go home and read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Here's just some of the highlights of the blessings that God bestows upon his people. Right, that he's going to choose us, he's going to make us holy, in love he's going to predestine us, he's going to adopt us, we're going to be blessed in the beloved, we're going to have redemption through his blood, he's going to forgive our trespasses, we're going to have the riches of his grace, he's going to make known to us the mystery of his will, he's going to unite all things in himself, we're going to obtain inheritance that to Christ, it's going to be to the praise of his glory, that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit and we have an inheritance from God. I don't know about you, that sounds like a lot of blessings. Right? That sounds like all the blessings. That's the point. God's saying, I'm going to bless you. Right? The promise that comes specifically to Abram uh, comes to you and I in fullness with what we see in Ephesians 1, amongst other places in the New Testament. Like, man, I'm going to bless you. And then, not, not only that, but he's, he says of Abram, I'm going to make your name great. Here's the irony. Right? Don't, don't miss the flow of, of, of Genesis. In chapter 11, a bunch of people got together and wanted to build a tower up to heaven. Why? So that their name would be great. Didn't happen. Here's Abram, who has no interest in building a tower to heaven to make his name great. He's just operating in faith. And what does God do? Makes his name great. In fact, the fulfillment of this we'll see in chapter 17 when God changes his name to Abraham. This is part of God's promise of blessing directed at Abraham, but implication and application for us. But, but it's not just specifically to Abram because we see the shift partway through, right? He says, so you're going to be a blessing, right? That you being a blessing gets extended to others. In fact, he, he goes on, he says, I'm going to bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, so here's the extension, right? To, to those who bless you, they're also going to be blessed. 
to those that curse you, it's going to go poorly for them. And then this final line that all the families, not some of the families, not most of the families, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What's he talking about there? What's he getting at? I mean, that's a massive statement that every family is going to find blessing in this single individual. It's not Abram. It's the offspring that's going to come from Abram. Right? Every family is going to be blessed by his great, 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 great. I don't know how many greats it is, but a lot of greats. Grandson. He's talking about Jesus. See, when, when, when Paul says in Galatians 3 that God was preaching the gospel to Abraham, he's talking about, man, this, this, this blessing to all families, that's my son. That's going to be the one who's going to rescue the world. And later in Galatians 3, Paul drives, or, uh, Paul drives us home, uh, starting in verse 25, when he says this. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ Jesus and put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male uh, and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Listen to what he says next. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. He's like, listen, if you have faith in Jesus, the promise of Genesis 12 belongs to you in the same way that it belongs to Abram. It's come solely through faith in Jesus, but it will enable all blessings for us. And so this word, right, this word to this guy in the Middle East, almost 4,000 years ago, and yet has massive, massive, massive bearing on your life and on mine. And so what do we do with this? Well, there really is a lot. A lot of ways that we could run with this and and think through this. Here's what I want to do. I want to just take the last couple minutes, and I'm just going to ask you some questions. Don't worry about writing the questions down. Worry about processing the questions considering the questions, letting the Spirit speak to you. They'll be in the from the desk. If you want a copy, I'll send them to you. Don't spend your time scribbling these things down. Spend your time processing what is God saying to me right now. All right, here we go. Question number one. Are you willing to obey God's call to you without knowing the result? Are you willing to obey God's call to you without knowing the result? Without knowing what's going to happen, without knowing whether or not it's going to be good or bad, without knowing, hey, this is going to work well or this is going to be a disaster. Are you simply willing to believe and obey what God calls you to in the moment, even if you have no idea how it's going to turn out for you? I mean, we could stop there, but I'm, nope, got a few more. Secondly, are you able to identify God's providence in your life? Are you simply able to see the providences of God? the generosity of God, the kindness of God, the provision of God. And then as you identify those, are you thanking God for that? Maybe for some of you, you're like, oh, I see it, I see it, I see it. But you're like, you know, it's been a long time since I've thanked God for it. Are you able to identify God's providence in your life? Number three, are you confident in God's promise of a place for you? Are you confident in God's promise of a place for you. He's got a place for you. He's moving you to a place. Now, now we see it in, 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 in micro form in our lives here and now. We'll see it in macro in eternity. But are you confident God's got a place for me? Number four, are you living in the fullness of the family that God has given to you? 
Are you living in the fullness of the family that God is giving to you? I'm not talking about your biological family. I'm talking about the family of God, the church that God has given to you. Are you living in the fullness of that? Or are you here today and you're like, man, I, I need to invest in that family. I promise you, you won't regret it. I promise you, you won't. Finally, this. Are you aware of the blessings that are yours in Jesus and the blessing of Jesus? Are you aware of the blessings that are, uh, that are yours in Jesus as well as that Jesus himself is the greatest blessing? And one of the beauties of Ephesians 1, there's a lot of good things that are going to come to the sons and daughters of God. But the greatest gift you and I will receive is our Savior. And so don't, 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 put, don't put the goodies in front of the giver of the goodies. He's the best. But God gives us those goodies to enjoy, and they're meant to, to, to turn our hearts and our minds back to a praise of Him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You, God, for the fullness of Your Word. God, for the richness and the robust nature of the blessings that You make available to Your people. Father, the greatest blessing being Jesus, who will save and reconcile us. Father, we're thankful that you give us a place, you give us a land, you give us a family. God, that you have bestowed blessings upon us. But God, we know, we know without reservation that the greatest gift of all is Jesus. And so, Father, we pray you'd help us to enjoy every gift, every blessing every kind and merciful and generous provision that you have given to us, God, would we see the fullness of your providence? God, would we live in the fullness of your providence? And God, would you be glorified in our lives? So God, where you're calling us to step out, to go, uh, to step into something, would you help us to be obedient? And God, as we do that, would we know that any step into something that you've called us to is coupled with the promises of your providence. We pray this in your name. Amen.